0: But when one's looking at investing, you've got to take the long-term trends into account. You've got to take into account population growth. You've got to, you know, I wouldn't be going and buying uh, retail shopping centers at the moment, unless they're very specific and niche because shopping centers in America are going bankrupt left, right and center. Same in England, because people are buying online.
1: Hi there, guys. Today, we are joined for the second time on the show by Scott Picken. He is the founder and CEO of Wealth Migrate, who are doing some incredible things in the area of property investments on the blockchain specifically. So Wealth Migrate are really giving access to retail investors, to property investment vehicles that previously were inaccessible and they're really giving retail investors access to these in, these vehicles from as low as you know hundred dollar investments uh so today we talk about property on the blockchain is that a reality and if it is when are we likely to be putting things like property on the blockchain we speak about nfts you know big big deal at the moment in terms of owning digital assets on the blockchain we speak about the wealth gap And bridging the wealth gap specifically. So rich and poor, how are we going to solve this wealth gap problem? And what are some of the dynamics currently that Scott sees in this space? Interestingly, we talk about uh, COVID-19 and the movement of people and uh, how the movement of people is affecting property prices and traditional uh, property investment assets. We talk about investor education. How do you give, you know, the ordinary man in the street access to a financial future that is compelling? And what is the role of investor education? Interestingly, we also talk about Tesla, you know, putting $1.5 billion of their profits into Bitcoin specifically. We talk about a new book from Reed Hastings called No Rules, Rules. Uh, Very interesting insights there about culture and the role of high performance cultures. We also talk about um, Atomic Habits by James Clear, uh, Mind Valley in terms of personal development for leaders today, and so, so, so much more. So there's a lot of resources here, guys. So pay careful attention to all of the references that we provide oh and one more thing uh highly recommend taking the wealth dynamics test that we talk about uh presented by roger hamilton so without further ado guys i hope you enjoy the show as much as i did enter scott pickin scott welcome back to the show dude
0: man thanks very much thanks for having us online
1: yeah man what's been happening bro it's been when last were you on the show it's been a couple years i think here
0: yeah, well, I know it was definitely pre-COVID because if I remember rightly, I was beating things in your office and uh, I know that wasn't happening over Zoom.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just put the bat down, dude. Okay, you you're in <laughs> you your virtual boardroom there at the back. I have real pictures, okay? Just putting that out there. Um, but um, on a serious note, though, uh, obviously we're going to talk all things, some really amazing developments happening at Wealth Migrate and things like that. But um, how would you characterize the last kind of – two years and more, you know, more especially in the kind of COVID, what was the impact in terms of, you know, what you guys are doing at Wealth Migrate? How would you characterize that whole pandemic situation?
0: Uh, I suppose I would take it from three different angles. Okay. So, and, and I'm sure most people will have a lot at a personal level. It's, I found it very interesting how my life's changed because I used to travel all the time. You know, literally every second week I was on an airplane flying somewhere else. As you said, the last time we did this, I was in your office, which meant I had to fly to Joburg, et cetera. And I live, uh, eight years ago, I chose to live in Neisner, which is, you know, a jewel on this planet. And, and now with covid it's allowed us to be doing this and business to be operating using Zoom and other online tools. So that's been really interesting. And on the one part, I've loved it because I haven't had to travel. And on the other part, I've hated it because I love meeting people and seeing people and whatever. So it's just that's just been fascinating. And it's going to be really interesting to see how the world changes, you know, as as kind of, you know, it gets back to normality. The second thing that I found um, really interesting is that, you know, I think there's been a, a worldwide adoption, and I know this is a cliche now, but there's been a worldwide adoption of these kind of online tools, you know, so whether it's for online shopping or, you know, online meetings or collaboration within teams, et cetera. And that's been very good for us because as an online platform, you know, people are now embracing, you know, as an example, if someone wanted to buy a house in America, they would not conceive of investing online to do it. They would get on an airplane, they'd fly to America, they'd set up a structure and a bank account and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And what's interesting now is, in the same way, they couldn't travel to work, so they had to figure out how to use Zoom. Suddenly, the, if they wanted to invest, they had to figure out how to do it. You know, um, which 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 has been really interesting. It's kind of created that adoption curve quite a lot faster up the up, or to push people up the adoption curve. And the third thing I would say, which which I find fascinating, is that. The world kind of has woken up to digitization. So what I mean by that is now we're now I'm talking on the so the first side was the demand side. Now I'm talking on the supply side. So as an example, John Robbie, um, who's someone I've worked with for 17 years. I don't know if you know John Robbie, he built Century City, it's you know one of the biggest developers in South Africa. And you know, he said to me, you know, pre-COVID, they would just send it out an email to their database, they would invite people to a hotel and they would sell a whole bunch of apartments. You know, recently they sold 100 million euros in, in one night in, in the one and only in Cape Town, pre-COVID. Now suddenly COVID comes along. You can't, you know, you've got a database, but you can't invite them anywhere. And so, you know, where where kind of industry was working fine in the traditional, I'm mean, going to call it traditional industry, was working fine pre-COVID. COVID in many industries created like a massive uh, catalytic change, and, and it, it went from a nice-to-have kind of going digital to effectively being forced to do it, and I, you know, I think that's really exciting for everyone because it's 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 created a game change that, that I think is going to um, really empower people, both both the investors and the partners. Which, you know, so that, that's sort of what I've seen happen over eighteen months. It's been a mindset shift.
1: Yeah, one of the ways I would characterize it is that you know, two years of digital transformation was adopted within two weeks. You know, um, you know, all those kind of innovation workshops where it was like what would you do if a pandemic would come tomorrow? You know, what would you do? Well, we'd make them all work. Like, and it was all just a theoretical thing. If anyone was ever thinking about it and then suddenly it was like, bang, you know, and it was like a non-negotiable you're at home and uh, you got to your point. You got to find new ways of, um, of engaging and kind of getting that commercial needle to move in the right way. Um, I, I've just been checking out your website. I'm going to bring it up here again. Um, You've had incredible growth here eh, since we last spoke. I mean, you've got um, over $90 million invested by clients, probably more than that now. I mean, you've got a hell of a lot of traction. I mean, uh, maybe for those of our viewers and listeners around the world who haven't listened to our first episode way back when, uh, maybe, could you maybe just characterize exactly what Wealth Migrate is, what you're trying to do, um, give us the elevator pitch, and then we can kind of move the conversation from there.
0: Yeah, look, in simple terms, Matt, if you and I wanted to buy a property, traditionally, we would go out, we would find a house, we would uh, probably set up a company, you know, if you put in 70% of the money, and I put in 30% of the money, you would own 70% of the property, I would own 30%. We'd agree how we're going to manage it. And, you know, who's going to look after the toilets and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, finally, we would you know, we'd have to figure out how we're going to sell it one day. All that we've done is use technology to overlay that and to make it a hell of a lot easier so that you and I and everyone else that's listening can go now invest in good quality deals with good quality partners, uh, whether it's partnering with John Robbie in Portugal, or whether it's investing in England or whether it's investing in medical buildings in America, you no longer have to choose, you know, you, 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 you don't have to, you know, fly to America, you, you don't have to set up structures, you don't have to set up bank accounts, it all happens online You've got the tax, you've got the compliance, you've got the digital wallets. But the most important thing that, that I like to put, actually, if you talk about the elevator pitch and make it simple, is that pretty much most people have read that book, Rich Dad Put It. Mm-hmm. And most people understand that they're either in the employee quadrant or they're in the self-employed quadrant. And both of those people work for money. And most people want to get to the I quadrant, which is the investor quadrant, which is over here. And that's all about freedom. That's where money is working for you. And what I think is really exciting is that we just use technology now to help people move from the E and the S to the I um, safely and simply. And, and the last thing is is that previously it was only available to you if you had a couple of million dollars. You know, now you can get started with $100. All
1: right, great. Um, so the big news, though, is that you guys have been uh, or obtained, rather, a license to offer crowdfunding services to the retail investor. Um, what does this mean exactly for, for you as a company? Yeah,
0: look, I would actually rather talk about what it means for the investor than to us. Because what happened with us is that 10 years ago, we started, uh, 11 years ago to be exact, we actually started with the dream of bringing investors together so that we had the, the buying power of the institutions. Uh, it was an unregulated space. In 2015, we created the African Crowdfunding Association so that we could work with the regulator to make it regulated. And only in the last couple of months have we actually managed to achieve the first regulation. What that means for investors is that up until now, they've been playing in an unregulated space and or if they've wanted to participate, it's in an unregulated space. And, you know, people are people work hard for their money. They don't want to be involved in scams and, and you know, um, all these kind of cryptocurrency scams and everything else that's happening. They want to be in a regulated space. So what it's done for investors is it gives them the peace of mind that they can now actually participate in this space, in this alternative investment space, using technology but with the with the regulation behind them, the second thing that it's done, which which I think is extremely uh, exciting, is that for financial advisors, you know, the traditional people in the financial industry, they are not allowed to um, support anyone investing in anything that's not regulated. So, what it's allowed the whole industry to do, and to answer your question, what it means for us, is that it means we we go more mainstream, we we less on the fringe now. And we're more mainstream in terms of people being able to participate.
1: Mm. Yes, um, it's true what they say, that uh, institutional money only comes to play when regulators or regulations are in the market, right? Or like crypto being very unregulated, as an example. Um, Just on that, I mean, obviously, there's NFTs being the big thing now, you know, whole new categories in this crypto space being created. Um, I mean, property on the blockchain, what's your view on that now? I mean, just broadly.
0: Look, it's, it's guaranteed going to happen. Uh, the only thing I can't tell you is whether it's going to happen in the next year or the next 10 years. So what I mean by that, I, um, I have a tendency and we as a company have a tendency of being a bit of an early adopter. We launched our first uh, cryptocurrency in 2018, early 2018, with the idea of you know my, my philosophy. If you take blockchain as an example and Bitcoin, imagine if you had Bitcoin, but it was it, you know backed by an asset everyone understands, property. You know, whereas I tend to joke, Matt. You know, you put put a hundred people on stage and put a gun to their head and say, "Explain the value of Bitcoin." If you get it wrong, I'm going to shoot you. There'd be very few people that would be prepared to actually do that. You know, because because it's hard to understand the value. Whereas property, everyone understands. You know, you can knock it, you can hit it. Everyone everyone gets the point. So I think it's going to happen. I guarantee it. It's going to happen. Um, what I think is a challenge, and the, where I can't answer the question, is how quickly governments will adopt it from a regulatory perspective. And like you've just said. That's really the impact that has from an institutional uh, basis. You know, it, it, while it's fringe and it's still very fringe, um, you've only got the early adopters. It's, it's nothing mainstream. Uh, the last thing I'd say is that as far back as 2017, 2018, I had, um, I had people that, you know, we, we, were, we were doing these crypto roadshows around the world and, and they were kind of going to blockchain all the deeds offices and everything else. It's taken us the best part of 10 years to get the country to regulate crowdfunding um blockchain in your deeds office is like the number one asset you've got in your entire country so i you know it's going to be a challenge there are forward-thinking countries that are out there and unfortunately you need the whole ecosystem you know you and i can go and blockchain a property but if the deeds office is not blockchain then then you're kind of going from new world to old world and the two have to be able to synchronize
1: Mm. um what is your i mean what does the future look like for wealth migrate as it relates to blockchain technology i mean obviously you mentioned that there are systemic challenges as you said um but assuming you could overcome all of these what does the future kind of look like for wealth migrate
0: stay with us we'll be right back Look, if we can get, not if, when we get the blockchain working properly, our vision is to make investing as simple as a swipe of a finger from $1. And I'd like to see a future where anyone, anywhere can invest in anything. And what I mean by that, and anything uh, from a quality perspective, but through your cell phone, you know you, whether you've got one dollar or a million dollars, you'll be able to invest. You know directly into an asset. Now, in the current traditional market, there's 16 different middlemen. So, in fiat, you know if you know when you you transfer your money from rands to dollars, dollars to euros, every time you do that, there's costs and expenses. Whereas, if you're using the blockchain. And you can literally, Matt can go on his cell phone, or it's probably going to be augmented reality, but that's probably a bridge too far. I don't know how far you want to go down that road. But someone literally uses a swipe of their finger. And they go, their $1 that's in their wallet, and their $1 now owns an asset. You know, call it a a high-rise building in Manhattan or something. And that's then on their wallet. That whole transaction Today, with today's technology, can happen within seven minutes. And obviously, that timing will just reduce uh, more and more. And the friction costs will reduce more and more. And I think there's two things that are really, really important. The first is that the trust will be there. You know, at the moment, you know, how do I know if I'm actually investing in the asset or not? How do I know if I own it? Whereas blockchain creates the foundation for trust. You've got e-commerce and social media. The two have come together. It creates social commerce. And blockchain is the foundation upon which trust is built. So trust is the number one component to investing that needs to get solved. And the second one, which I think is really exciting, is inclusivity. You know, there's three and a half billion people on the planet that are not part of the global ecosystem that are all getting access to digital phones. And they want access to they want access to education, they want access to health but they want to also start accessing things like wealth and and what middle-class people want. And I I see this being a significant impact in in solving one of the greatest challenges on the planet, which is the wealth gap.
1: Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that in my next question. Um, How how is that gap, or how would you characterize that gap now? I mean, if you think about access to technology being um, ubiquitous almost in many uh, parts of the world, especially even in emerging markets like Africa, Um, is that gap bigger or smaller? What's happening there?
0: Yeah, it's interesting because, because you can look at it from two different sides. If you take the last 20 years, the wealth gap is getting significantly worse where, where a few people are getting much more wealthy than others. So on the one side of the fence, it's getting a hell of a lot worse. And the reason being is that wealthy people get wealthy by investing in good quality assets. It's not by how much money they work, uh, you know, how much time they put in. It's because they own good quality assets. So, the second half of that question, I think, is quite exciting because with technology, with the barriers to entry being dropped, more and more people can now start to participate in those good quality assets. And, you know, they always say, if you want to get wealthy, copy a wealthy person. If you want to be successful, copy a successful person. Well, you know, if you want to get wealthy, invest with what wealthy people are doing. Now, I'll give you an example. Many people on this call uh, would never have heard of a structured note before, and yet, the wealthiest people in the world all invest in structured notes. Now, the reason no one's ever heard of it is because the minimum investment to invest in a structured note if you go through an institution is $2 million US dollars. Okay, now, I don't know about you, Matt, but I don't have $2 million US dollars lying around. So there's no point in even learning about a structured note because I can't participate. Last night on my platform, I invested in a structured note with $100. Okay, and that is paying me a return of... 16% in US dollars or 4% a quarter, okay, and it's backed by one of the top 10 banks in the world. Now, again, I know that what I'm saying now is spinning people's heads and they're going, but how's that even possible? Well, it wasn't possible because what happened was the institutions only played when you had $2 million or more. You and me, who were the retail investors down here, are only getting kind of 4 or 5% from a bank per year, and we're battling to beat inflation. And someone is taking that margin gap and technology is cutting out that middleman where you don't have to be at the bottom anymore. You can invest at the top level just with smaller amounts. So coming back to your your wealth gap, that's how I can see the world changing. Because when people start to invest in good assets, they will start to get much better returns and that will teach them better habits. And the more you change the habits, the more you're going to change your ultimate financial future.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things I think to maybe double down on where we are right now is to talk about this idea of of um investor education because I think there is this aspirational quality that we all have. We all want to, you know, become more. Uh we all want to be financially independent. And I love the reference to uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is probably the first book I ever read. You know, in the four quadrants. And um, you know, you want to go from employee to business owner. As fast as you can, uh, and then get to you know at some kind of scale and, and get to the investor um, space. And I think there is broadly speaking in the re- retail investor space a, a very big knowledge gap. You know, you spoke about the the um, you know the wealth gap. but There's also a knowledge gap that's very. Prevalence, and I think what happens is people don't spend the time educating themselves about you know different types of investment vehicles until they can actually invest, because you know to your point, it's like well if you spoke about this thing, I can't participate at a two million dollar threshold, like you know understand. So, but if I can now, I'm educating myself about it. So it's almost it only happens when you are able to actually invest. Um, but what you're doing is you're saying well actually, dude, you know you can do it with a hundred dollars, you don't need $2 million, but you can get effectively access to the same kind of investment structures. Um, and so the, my sense is, is that, you know, invest retail investor education is a very big hurdle for, you know, innovators like wealth migrate. Um, would you agree and how are you tackling this, you know, educational constraints if you like, as it relates to retail investing?
0: Yeah, look, you've hit the nail right on the head. I tend to say there's six steps uh, to people creating the wealth uh, that they want in their lives. Uh, The first one is belief. If you don't believe it's possible, then everything else is a waste of time. The second one is the one you're you're tapping into, which is knowledge. Uh, The third one is accessibility. Uh, The fourth one is a system. The fifth one is actually having the accountability and a feedback loop. And then ultimately, it's getting the wealth. But I want to be clear, that's not a straight line graph. It's a circle. Because as you you know, as you do more, you'll learn more, and you'll you get more belief, and it, it's hopefully an upward circle. By the way, that spiral can also spiral down. You know, if you don't have the belief and you do nothing, you'll have a poverty mindset, and it'll get worse and worse and worse. So, what what we believe very very strongly is in education and empowerment. Um, we've actually got the Wealth University uh, specifically to solve um, steps one and two, which is the belief and the knowledge. However, what I think is so exciting though, Matt, is that. If I was teaching you about structured notes or even property, even going and buying a residential property, you know, Rich Dad Porter, you and I read the book 20 something years ago. And what, what do most people do? They read the book and then they go and walk the streets and they go try to buy a house or they go try to buy an apartment or something. Um, but most people, you know, don't have even a 5 or 10% deposit. So they go, oh, I can't do that either. But now I don't believe you've got the, the right to have that excuse because you can participate. I mean, you can go on easy equities and you can invest from one Rand. Mm. You know, so I don't think anyone has an excuse anymore not to be participating in the investment realm. And the metaphor I like to give people is how many of your listeners learn to walk by reading a book or going on
1: a course? Difficult to say. Probably not that many. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the bottom line is every single one of us learned to walk by standing up, falling down, standing up, falling down. And, and you know, maybe we had a, a mom or a dad kind of holding our hands to kind of mentor us a bit. But the bottom line is you've got to get started and there's nothing more engaging in education when you're actually part of the game than when you're watching from the sidelines. Mm. And so, you know, if you if you've only invested 100 dollars um, or even 1 and you actually are on the ride of bitcoin and bitcoin's going up or bitcoin's going down or you're invested in a in a property or you invested in a structured note, you're going to learn a hell of a lot more about those asset classes than you are going to be just watching from the sidelines. And I think I think that learning while doing is one of the most powerful things that's going to happen over the next decade, where people will be able to participate because the amounts are so much smaller. They will, and they will make mistakes. I want to be clear: people will make mistakes, just like when you stood up and learned to walk, you fell over. But, but if, but you're not betting the entire farmhouse anymore. So, if you put a bit of money on Bitcoin and it goes down, then it, it doesn't kill you. Mm. And I think that's the benefit of of um, of the, that uh, knowledge gap that you're talking about that we can solve now because people with their mobile phones can get access to that knowledge.
1: Um, yeah, hundred percent. And um, just to maybe add to that, um, one of the things that COVID going back to COVID and its impact on property in general is that people are moving from New York to, you know, the outer suburbs. I know my, I've got family that actually was telling me that an hour away from New York, like Manhattan, right. So an hour on a train, um, the uh, he uh, it's uh, it's my uncle mike and he was um looking for a property to rent can't remember the name of the place uh, it escapes me now so apologies for that um, but it is an hour outside of manhattan and he couldn't find a single place to rent not one place Um, And he said that what's happening is thanks to the pandemic and to the points we landed before, a lot of people now have this kind of new paradigm of, well, I can work from anywhere. I think there's even a term for it now. Um, where people are leaving Joburg Central. I've had a lot of entrepreneurs in my network have moved to like Neisner and Cape Town and you know, various other parts of the country. And we're seeing the same trend where people don't need to suffer this kind of existence where it's busy, 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 you know, the old way. Uh, and I have to sit in traffic every day and uh, you know, blah, 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 because this is just how it is. It's not like that anymore and we'll never go back fully to the way that it was. Um, so going back to this movement of people, we're seeing a lot of people even moving to Florida as an example. And because of this movement of people, it's affecting obviously the, the availability of property and supply and demand always affects price. Um, in with, with having said all of that, um, Scott, I'd like to maybe just get your views. I mean, how has the movement of people affected the, uh, if it has at all, affected the, uh, the space of retail property investing like how does one plan for this kind of unpredictable trend of movements of people
0: sure it's a great question so just quickly those towns what i've been told those towns are called zoom towns i live in one of them i live in that no? oh, there you so go lived here for eight years and everyone laughed at me and now now you would be amazed i mean in Plett, I was at dinner last night. There were 10 people that have moved from London. So ex-South Africans living in London, they were like, why are we living in London when we can live in Plett and do the same, yeah. you know, do the same job? So it's really exciting how the world has changed like that. How's it impacting property? I it will impact property. You know, I've got I've got properties in London around the Wimbledon area, which was always hugely popular with South Africans. It was, you know, zone three, easy to commute. And for the first time, um, in the last year, I've had one or two vacancies, which I've never—I've owned a property there for twenty years, never had a vacancy ever, because it was a good, good part of the you know of the city. It was easy to get into central London, and now people are like, well, I don't need to live in you know Wimbledon; I can live out on the coast, you know, or or whatever. So I think you know it's interesting. My uncle taught me twenty years ago. He said people and places with with the sunshine will always be very popular, and you know, my uncle immigrated from Zimbabwe to Brisbane. And his logic: a place like Brisbane is always going to grow because it's got a good lifestyle, good weather, you know, good everything. And you know, Florida is another classic example. Texas is another example where there's been mass immigration of people from San Francisco to Austin, because the quality of lifestyle is so much better, it's so much cheaper, etc. So I think your your question around um, property is very relevant. And one of the number one fundamentals that you need to look at. In property, and it's got nothing to do with COVID, it's a fundamental of property, is population growth. Is a city growing or is it decreasing? Are people coming in or are they leaving? Are countries, are people coming into the country or people leaving? And if you start looking at, at population growth, it's it's one of the first 10 metrics on, on our GIT system, which is our global investment due diligence system. You've got to be looking at that metric because if the population is declining, so a good example of that is Detroit. Uh, Detroit the was the biggest manufacturing hub of cars in the world. And then you know, kind of they all went out of business and it became the rust belt. And it's a horrible place to live. There's no jobs and people left. And I don't know if people know this, but 25% of Detroit is, sits empty. It literally is derelict. Okay. And so people come along and they go, oh, you can get a great property deal in Detroit. The problem is it's never going to recover <laughs> because there is no population growth. So I think coming, it's a long answer to your question. But when one's looking at investing, you've got to take the long-term trends into account. You've got to take into account population growth. You've got to, you know, I wouldn't be going and buying a retail shopping centres at the moment unless they're very specific and niche, because shopping centres in America are going bankrupt left, right, and centre. Same in England because people are buying online. I personally wouldn't buy a parking garage, because it's not going to be too long until autonomous cars are going and no one's going to need to park their car. So. You, you've got to future-proof your investments and take into account the trends and where they're going.
1: Um, yeah, is it possible to plan for these kind of things? Like, how adaptable is you know in real estate investment vehicles to these kind of you know trends that are constantly in flux, especially now the dust really hasn't settled.
0: Yeah, so I would answer that in, in a couple of ways, and the one is that. There's always going to be things that are that are impacting um, us. Okay, if I look at my last 20 years of investment, we've had 9/11, we've had the global financial crisis, we've now had COVID. So I think to 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 plan for change and uncertainty is it's what's going to happen. Okay, so you want to future-proof your investments. You want to make sure that they are economically resilient, and you want to plan for kind of the worst-case scenario okay? And and if you can survive the worst case scenario, then everything else is upside. The second way of looking at it is that most people look at investing as trying to do it on their own, okay? And they try and think, well, if I want to buy a house, I'm going to go out and buy a house and maybe my mom or my dad or my friend will help me buy it. I think the world's changed completely. Why not partner? You know, do you think that if you buy shares in Tesla, you will be able to navigate the changes that are going to come? Do you think that um, you know, someone like Elon Musk and, and his management team will be able to navigate those changes. My gut feel is yes, they've navigated it for the last 17 years and they'll probably continue. Um, if you're investing in property, you know, you can go and do it on your own or you can partner with John Robbie, who's been in the game for 40 years, um, has dealt with, you know, the rise and fall of apartheid, um, you know, the, the whatever that speech was in 87 that nearly imploded the whole country, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, good quality partners have a track record for a reason. COVID is, is another challenge. And, and what you tend to find is that good quality partners tend to adapt. So using John Robbie as an example, he's one of the first partners that's come to us, major well-known brand institutions come to us and gone, I see the world's changed. We need to go digital. We want to partner with you. And what I'm trying to say, Matt, is that those type of partners have the uncanny ability to deal with the change, to adapt and to succeed anyway.
1: Yeah. It's, and
0: you know, my opinion is you want to be partnering with them, you want to be investing alongside them.
1: Yeah. I had an interesting chat the other day to an uh, entrepreneur who runs um, a company similar in terms of structure, but focused on the consumer space. Um, and um, he said something interesting. I was basically um, explaining to him how, uh, you know, when you're trying to build a senior management team, and let's just say at an exco structurally so you can start to take that next step in terms of scale that it what that what i'm seeing is that uh senior people sometimes aren't worth the cost um and then and that whole sort of thing you know it takes time to build an exco like literally years (laughs) you know to get it to where it needs to be um and he said something really interesting to me which is kind of loosely related to what you said around partnership he said you said instead, I'll use an example in terms of marketing. You said, why build a marketing team when you can have a partner do it for you uh, and have some skin in the game? Because you said, if, if you have a partner that has some skin in the game, they're focused. If you have an expensive uh, salary bill, you know, it's your job to keep them focused. It's very, it's a very different type of motivation. Um, And I've been thinking about that over the last two days and going, hmm, you know, if we adopted, and by the way, we specialize in the tech space and that whole ecosystem is driven through partnerships, Microsoft, everybody, IBM, uh, etc. So we have been living and breathing in this partner ecosystem for some time. Um, But I want to get your views on that. I mean, um, you mentioned partnerships obviously it's something that you do um, and do it successfully what has what advice rather would you like to give to an entrepreneur who is uh, potentially evaluating partnerships um, and uh, whether what 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 have you learned about selecting the right type of partners to get the type of outcomes that you that you'd need
0: sure matt that's such a, such a good and deep question because, I mean, we could spend an entire webinar just or whatever, introdu- you know, a call just on this. I want to just share some, some gifts, basically. This is a book I've just read recently, No Rules Rules, okay? And it's by Reed, uh, Reed Hastings, and he's the founder of um, Netflix. So, you know, if, you, if you're taking a company that's just been able to innovate and adapt and whatever, and he puts it down to one thing and one thing only, and that's culture. So, you know, if, if you really, you've got to read the book because there's some amazing principles on how to get good people. You know, they are all those sayings, get the right people on the bus, blah, blah, blah. So mm-hmm. I would start with getting the right person first and, and I would go with culture. The second, on the partnership side, another great book is Exponential Organizations by Salim Mishma, where if you're wanting to scale and you're wanting to grow your company exponentially, it's impossible to hire everyone internally. It's literally impossible. And there's actually 10 frameworks upon which um, he spaces it. And I don't have time today to go into all of that, but go go check it out. Go and Google it. There's TED talks and whatever. And, but the whole thing is on, on partnerships. So you don't hire everyone and in internally you you bring in um, partners. And like you said, skin in the game. And the third part, and it's interesting, you call it skin in the game. I call it alignment, but we tend to say there's three things I want in a partner. One is they need a track record. Okay. They need to have known, you know, they need to delivered. You know, so if, again, John in forty years, he's been through the ups, he's been through the downs. The second thing is they need to be focused. You know, you meet so many people and they're doing twenty different things and they can do a bit of digital marketing on the side and they can do public speaking and whatever, you know, and it's like, I'm not interested. Like you want a one trick pony that this is what they do. This is their speciality. And the third one for me is alignment. And often alignment is you called it skin in the game. It might be putting their own money in a deal. So, like when we're partnering with John Robbie, he's putting in his dollar or his euro, we're putting in our euro, and it's treated the, the euro is treated exactly the same way. That's alignment. You know, if you've got a marketing partner like you men, and they're skin in the game, and they, they can be part of the upside, but they can also potentially be part of the downside, then you're aligned. Um, I think the challenge comes in when it when it's purely a commercial arrangement, be it an employee or an external partner. And they're going to get paid at the end of the month, whether they deliver or not. Um, What tends Mm. to happen then is that uh, seven nights a week, you lie in bed worrying about your company and they sleep happily. Mm. Whereas if if you're aligned, uh, they lie in bed worrying about getting results as well.
1: Yeah, well, this is it, right? Um, Because it's quite an interesting paradigm because, you know, I've always believed that culture beats strategy in many cases. Like a product can be copied very easily. Um, And we're very much on a productization you know, let, let's just say a bad example, potentially, but if somebody wanted to copy what you've done at a product level, they could quite easily, well, I say relatively easier do that, right? Every, every product, CRM system, whatever it is, can be copied quite quickly. Um, but a culture is a different, diffi- difficult thing to copy. It, it's not something, copy my culture, go. Uh, you wouldn't even, no, no one would know where to start. And so, and I would imagine that that's kind of the principle around what Reed Hastings is saying in his book, you know, around culture and high-performance culture and all this kind of stuff. But culture really takes years to develop and sometimes markets move much faster. So you've got this, you've got a continuum timeline of like, here's culture and it's moving at snail's pace. Um, And then you've got markets that are moving at lightning pace, being disrupted by C-19, et cetera, et cetera. So when you look at that, you go, well, hang on a second, like, you know, how do I actually, how do I actually create commercial value quickly? Because I think the more, the longer I, I play in the, in the space of business, the the more I see how opportunities come and go very, very quickly. And so uh, as an example, we launched a a data play called Super Data Ninja within a matter of three weeks focused at the UK and US markets because that is where the opportunity is, but it's not going to be there forever. Um, And so you need that culture engine to then back up what your productization strategy is. Um, and, but even then it's like the moment you're in market, suddenly everybody sees, I mean, we've seen this within one of our other companies, digital Kung Fu. It's like the moment we say this, then suddenly there's like digital Kung Fu has competitors called, what was it? Something like, like Kung Fu Panda. (laughs) <laughs> it's like our customers are forwarding us mails from other people called Kung Fu Panda and they're using our case studies to then tell the, our customers why they should. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous what what I, what goes on in the marketplace there. Um, but uh, maybe if we could talk product in a second, I mean, obviously what you built is is not easy. It is scalable. Um, anyone who says to, to build something product level, technology product level is easy doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, what have you learned... <laughs> about (laughs) what have you learned about product development technical technology product development like what what is one thing that you've learned that potentially you feel entrepreneurs don't know
0: hire specialists Mm. so when you start off in a company you tend to you tend to have people that we call them the swiss army knife So I'm a Swiss army knife. I can do lots of things. I can do sales. I can do marketing. I can do the accounts if I have to. I'm a Swiss army knife. But where our business went to the next level was when we hired a specialist. And so as an example, we brought in a CTO, um, um, chief technology officer. He had had built systems for a company called Aprio that was doing like $13 trillion a year. And what I thought... I needed was just to hire a programmer and they would go out and I would tell them what they want and they would just code what I need and voila I'd have a product and what I realized was you know it's it's the classic thing for entrepreneurs you don't know what you don't know and he actually came in and what I tend to refer to is he was a tech team builder so he built a whole team he brought in the whole agile methodology uh, sprints and all these things I'd never even heard of basically and you know, and and now voila we have a product. <laughs> so so I think really for me specialist is, is the key. We then learned that again in digital marketing, the same in the commercial space. So I think businesses evolve. Um and, and what you really need, particularly in the tech space, is that as an entrepreneur, as a visionary, you're often gonna have a quite a good idea of what you think the customer needs, like how to solve their problem. But you need someone to take that out of your head and translate it into code, as in ones and noughts, and, and kind of be able to speak programming language, which I can't do, by the way, even though I've got a master's degree in tech. I'm not a good translator between what I want and how to make it happen. And you've got to have specialists that can can do that.
1: Mm. Um, there was a, a talk I gave to the team. <clears throat> um, I get my talks from uh, from Rich, Rich Mulholland's uh, talk draw. It's really great. So if you want to do pre-built talks, if you want to access pre-built talks around motivation, leadership, whatever. Uh, it's very cool talkdraw.com, highly recommend it. So one of the talks um was around how to fail at any no, how to fail at almost everything and still win big. Um and it's based on um this article here. Um, uh, I'll shen, send it to you in a sec, Scott. I'll talk you through it, but it's called. It's all about this idea of your talent stack, and it's a concept coined by um, Scott Adams. And the premise here is that um, let me actually read this to you. He says, and Scott Adams is like Zapiro uh, in terms of cartoonisms um and he's one of the world's most famous cartoonisms, but he's also he's a self-confessed kind of average person he says yeah he's not the best artist there are better artists than him he's not much of a business expert there are more savvy experts he's never taken a college level writing class yet he creates dilbert i don't know if you know that the famous comic that uh, that strip appears in 65 countries he's got a net worth of 75 million dollars um and he said and he, and he says he is ordinary at most things it's kind of like what you said scott about um you know being a generalist so the idea being is if you think about donald trump people if you think about donald trump's forest they look people look at all the trees and they go nah the trees are terrible but he's actually got a really great forest you know in the sense that would if he ran for 2024 presidency would you bet against him probably not why because is he the world's best speaker no is he the world's best person at social media? No. Is, does he know the most about politics? No, he's a generalist. He has a lot of good, above average skills in many different things. And in the world of business, like you said, I'm above average in sales and marketing, even the small things, art direction. I can write copy. I was writing emailers, (laughs) you know, uh, like two weeks ago. Um, And uh, and then to your point, accounting. And so I'm above average in all those levels of things and so are you. And that's what makes you, uh, uh, the the idea being is that that's what gives you a great talent stack. And there's this old idea that, you know, you must be a specialist at this one thing in order to be successful. But in the world of entrepreneurship, you actually need to be really good or above average at many different things um, in order to really become Successful, um, and so the idea being is that you should develop a talent stack. Um, so, um, Scott, I'd like to ask you: Does that concept of developing a talent stack resonate with you? Um, and are there any personal habits or routines that you do to continually develop your talent stack as and when you need to?
0: Yeah. Um, so, look the talent the talent stack definitely uh, resonates massively with me. I mean, as an example, I um, I highly recommend uh, Mindvalley. And, you know, it's a bit like Netflix for personal development. And, you know, just this morning I did, um, I, I, I'm doing two courses at the moment. So they're about 20 minutes every day. And one of them I'm doing is on leadership. And and actually it's it's by a guy called Keith uh, Ferrazzi that wrote um, the latest book that's come out is Le- Leading Without Authority. And it's the whole change now and how to lead teams when you're not in the same room and can't go to the coffee and have a coffee or go to the pub, you know, like you're online. So you know, for me, Matt, I think, you know, as a, as a entrepreneur, actually as any individual, if you're not learning, you're dying, like if you're not growing you're dying, you know? So, um, my, my routine is literally every single day, I'm either, um, and if not doing all three things, you know, I'm listening to an audio book I'm on mind Valley, I'm doing like a meditation prime practice, etc. cetera. So I think, I think that's critically important. I think we've got to be consistently learning. I tend to go, it's quite interesting. I tend to kind of, You let your intuition follow you. So, like, I just finished this book because I really I want to build a world-class culture, and I'm like, okay, well, let me go learn about that. And then from that, that leads you to another leadership team and you know leadership thing. And then another book I got recently um, recommended was Atomic Habits. And you know, so sometimes it's personal for you, and sometimes it's for the business. But I tend to follow my intuition as what I'm looking for next. And the second way I'd answer that is. There's a guy called Roger Hamilton that I think is really, really valuable. And you can go and do a profile thing called wealth dynamics. Mm. And that was really valuable for me because what I what I realized was like, as an example, there's a great entrepreneurship book. Um, I've bloody forgotten the name of it now, but it's pretty much the concept of McDonald's where you go out and you systemize everything. Uh emoth, emoth's the word. And you know, I sat around going, oh, I'm terrible with systems, I bloody hate systems. And then I brought a guy in, and what he did in six months was more systems than I achieved in ten years. You know, and so I, I, I do think there's a balance between, you know, being good at what you're good at and finding others that are good at what they are good at in, in their flow. You know, um, which kind of brings this 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 metaphor between all this um, this balance between specialists and and kind of generalists. You know, mm. and um, and the third thing I would say is that you know the biggest lesson I probably learned is that I often when you start out, you say you can't afford people. Um, This is probably one of my biggest mistakes that took me more than 10 years to to realize. You say you can't afford people like even like I couldn't afford a PA as an example. And after you've worked through um, having a mentality of of, um, figuring out a way to make that happen, you actually realize you can't afford not to have those people. <laughs> like, it's a it's a whole different mindset, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. So weird. You're mentioning so many things that I've also covered. So I read uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear, Great book. Everybody should read that stuff. Um, and then, like, years ago, like, I'm talking, like, 2001 – when i started my like one of my self-help companies (laughs) i was i was selling like um you know uh, personal development products cds back then because the internet hadn't had sex and so there was no digital downloads available um (laughs) but i was like 26 and like you know standing up in front of a room full of people how to you know trying to motivate them about how to build things that matter i just sold my first company and thought i was a rock star luckily the universe was going to fix that all for me, and I failed massively. <laughs> Nobody wants to take advice about life from a twenty-six-year-old. Don't forget, Scott. Okay, now's the time. Now's the time to shine. Um, but uh, when I was doing all of that, I actually came across Roger Hamilton and Wealth Dynamics. And so the idea, just for those of you who haven't, um, haven't, uh, you know, it's about paths to wealth, of which your path is one of those. And it's based on an old Chinese book, I believe. Uh, Scott, is that? Can you recall?
0: Okay. Yeah, the I Ching. The it's I like Ching. six thousand years worth of like Chinese Eastern philosophy. Yeah,
1: and tell me, uh, what was your uh, profile? Where did you land? Creator, mechanic, star? Creator. Creator. Here, I was a mechanic. Can you believe that? So, <laughs> when I, when you know,
0: I, anyone that's sort of visionary and starting out in a business is either going to be a mechanic, a creator, or a um, uh, what do they call them now?
1: Oprah Winfrey is a, so uh, like a she, star. She is a star, star. yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. If you go to wealthdynamics.com, guys, costs $97, do your test. It's, it's quite interesting. So when I first um got my results, it was like um, you get primary and secondary. So my primary was mechanic and secondary was a creator. And I was like, I'm not a mechanic. I don't fix cars. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but now that I've built quite a few businesses, I actually feel that, like to your point around systems, you know there's this great saying that i love that you never rise to the level of your goals you always fall to the level of your systems um and so being able to systemize things is really such an overlooked idea um that can really move the the kind of commercial needle for for many companies just even cost reduction there's many other things ai rpa all these things are you know part of this whole process around systems and automation and stuff um how far do you think you can push the systems automation needle?
0: So it's really interesting if you're running, you know, a very systemized uh, business. So like Mittal's running a steel manufacturing mill and the more and more, you know, efficient they get, the more and more profitability you can get arguably, even at the expense of the workers, you could go down that road. If you want to, if you're running something like Netflix, then it's all about creativity and you actually want to remove all the rules. And you want literally people to be able to be creative and come up with innovation. So I would, I would challenge that, Matt, to say, I don't think one thing fits all. You know, I think, I think it's a a case of a bit of a bit of both. I I truly believe that what you really want to try and do is systemize the culture of the team, the way they behave, and then allow them the freedom and the autonomy to get on and get the results um, while consistently improving. However, Please understand, I'm only talking from my perspective, which is in the kind of creative tech people business. I'm in the white collar people business. I'm not running a factory or, you know, and I think people need to, you know, you need to be very clear on what you're doing, you know, and it is different, you know.
1: Mm. No, I understand.
0: I do, I, do give, I do give one comment to your mechanic uh, thing because a lot of people are like that. They're like, oh, I don't want to be a mechanic. I don't want to fix the car. And it's like, well, Mark Zuckerberg's a mechanic. Elon Musk's a mechanic. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I want to be that person. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. And Elon Musk made mechanics cool, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Engineering was finally cool again. Um, speaking of um, Tesla, obviously you would have seen uh, this in the news, but um, Tesla put over a billion dollars uh, into their... Or into Bitcoin, um, and raised a lot of eyebrows. Drove the price of Bitcoin astronomically up. Went on another run. Um, what are your, what was your, what is your view on on that pati- that particular move from Tesla? Um, obviously, Michael Saylor is a quite a well-known uh, opinion maker in the Bitcoin corporate space. He put half a million dollars. He was the first to put literally cash from his business into Bitcoin. Um, and then Tesla added, and it's it's probable that we'll see other companies doing this kind of thing. Um, what is your view on on Tesla putting that kind of money into Bitcoin? Obviously, now it's a good move in hindsight, but at the time it was novel and new. And do you feel that, um, you know, in terms of uh, corporate strategy or financial strategy, that this is something that you will see more of?
0: You know, Matt, what amazes me is that, I mean, my company's like a microcosm in comparison to Tesla, but I couldn't get my board to to agree to put in a hundred dollars into Bitcoin. So you know, how, <laughs> how he got his board to approve one point five billion dollars, I you know actually have no idea, because um, I find it fascinating, you know, like how that would even happen, you know, and you know, so how it happened, I've got no idea. Why it happened is really interesting, you know. He made Elon Musk made more money in Bitcoin's rise than he made in 17 years of investing in Tesla, which is bizarre. Okay, um, and I tend to I tend to joke with people. You never made money unless you sell. So I don't know if they bought and hold or if they bought and sold. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 answer I have, and I and I'm going to be frank. This is I feel like I'm talking above my pay grade now. You know, like where I I, I actually don't know enough to really have a solid comment. So I have asked quite a few people because, including Roger Hamilton, by the way, because I. I didn't fully understand it. And, and what he explained to me was that there's a lot of money that they have on their balance sheet at the moment that's literally lazy capital, and they might as well put it um, to use. And they see this is where the world's going. And as you now know that you can start paying for Teslas now with Bitcoin, et cetera. So they're sort of buying into the ecosystem. And, and you know they're not just, uh, in my opinion, they're not just betting on whether the currency is going to go up or down. They're betting on the long term of this is where crypto is going, and they're actually making a play towards where the business is going. So the way I understand it in my own limited low pay grade (laughs) compared to Elon Musk uh, spot is that it's more of a strategic move to the next 10 years of where the future is going than trying to make a play on on, whether the crypto market was going to go up or down. And, And on that basis, my gut feel, and I've got nothing to prove this, is I bet you they haven't sold they've bought and hold with a strategic view of going long
1: yeah um the <laughs> there was such a stink about it so what i love about elon is like you know when you smoke joint on a uh, joint on joe Rogan's sh- podcast you know and everyone's like ah what are you doing and you know he was literally on the show and his like pr people were like what the fuck are you doing um and uh, and he was just like <clears throat> <off he> went. <laughs> Uh, And that became like just, you know, very, very like kind of like what CEO of a listed company does that. And then what CEO of a listed company puts one and a half billion dollars into Bitcoin? Like I didn't see GE doing that. Um, And then there was such a stink about that. And one of the funny things I saw was that he changed his chief financial officer's job title to master of coin. (laughs) jeez uh, i think it's just such a cool maverick approach to leadership and maybe i want to just end there and just to have a quick question about leadership um you know if we, if we look if but people just,
0: just, just before you go there i don't know if you've seen the test in the video where like their fast sports car it's like it literally has a button like fuck you speed or something yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, what is it like, ludicrous mode just,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Ludicrous
0: yeah, mode, so yeah. you know it's just like wow you know it's just i don't know i think it's I think it's nice to bring back a bit of humor and fun to the world. And I think, I think with where we're going in the world, if people like to see the authenticity. They know we're all human.
1: Yeah. Well, this is the thing I've, one of the big things I'm going through at the moment is, you know, when you're a startup and you have like nine people and you don't know what you're doing and you don't really know who your customer is and you're just having fun all day. But then you figure that stuff out and you start scaling, you know, and we're, we're just, on this kind of exponential growth curve. Um, And then suddenly the business, I use the analogy of a business being in diapers and it's learning to walk, it's falling over and it's making mistakes and whatever. But eventually it figures out how to walk and then it learns how to run. Um, And then it gets out of diapers and then it becomes like an adolescent. It's like a teenager who's like 18 years old and he wants to leave the house now. He wants to get out of the building so he can stand on his own two feet uh, and things suddenly become... Serious for the business, you know, uh, things uh, like the, it's just your payroll, your payroll is huge. There's now you know, 50 plus families that rely on you. Um, and, um, the consequences of making the wrong decisions are, are, are more compounded, you don't really have the, and in your case, you have a board and then in some cases you have shareholders or private or angels who now also want to return on their money. And so things get serious quite quickly. And one of the things, which was where I wanted to go with the leadership piece is that I found that things get too serious. And so you reach a stage where you the fun starts to go the the you know the lead, the you know the fun of being an entrepreneur, the uh, you know the uncertainty of course is always there. But I'm talking about like the fun, the fun of it. You know, the people management starts to get hectic, blah 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 blah. Um, how do you? And this is more question for me, but I'm sure entrepreneurs with scale, relative you know scale businesses would have been in this situation before. So I'd love to get your view um how do you reintroduce that fun aspect back into your culture uh when your business is at a certain size
0: sure i wish i knew the answer um i often i often ponder on it where you know we we it feels like we've got too serious and you know particularly when people are in all different geographies you know it's it's a huge expense just to try and get everyone in the same place you know um i uh i don't know the answers to be honest matt i um I I wish I did know because uh, I do miss I do miss the kind of the smaller vibe and the you know we used to even have like our Christmas party and everyone brought their families along and you'd kind of meet the husbands and the boyfriends and the wives and the whoever and you know now it's it's all very you know corporate and you know oh we can't afford a Christmas party we've just had COVID and you know all that sort of stuff so mm. it's I do find it I do find it very challenging I think the only thing that I would uh, say to people is that I use Richard Branson as a um, as a real um, kind of uh, motivation, you know, where the guy's running four hundred different companies, and you know, he still has a hell of a lot of fun. He keeps his naughty spirit, you know. When I I had the privilege of spending a week on Neck Island with him, he was sixty-five years old, but he had the he had the mindset of a forty-year-old. You know, he was kite surfing, he was having fun, he was working, and um, and I think I think the only way I would be able to answer it for you. And by the way, I want to I want to repeat, I don't know the answer, so I'm kind of talking to myself here as well is that I think the only way to do it is that we we as the leader needs to instigate it and have and make it happen. You know, we we need we need to be you 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 create what you um, what's the word you the way you behave is what you create. So you know I think you kind of have to you know sometimes we've got to let all the all the shit off our shoulders and just relax and, and let people have a bit of fun, you know, I suppose. I don't know. I don't know the answer. You know, like we've tried everything, dude. We've tried Friday afternoon drinks on Zoom, <laughs> you know it's like whatever. You know. <laughs>
1: I know, but this is the thing, right? I never, I love people who say that they're an expert on something because I know then I mustn't interview them on the show. You know, like we get pitched a lot and they're like, yeah, but this guy's in, the PR people are the worst. I represent this dude and, or this chick and, uh, you know, they're an expert at this and here's what they can, I'm like, no, it's just a no. It's a hard no for me because there's no such thing because the reality is, and I actually think your answer is actually excellent because... The more I think I know about something, the less I know that I know. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's just.
0: Well, a, my point is if, if you figure it out, please send me a WhatsApp and tell me, oh, because uh, find, I, uh, one of the things I definitely want to do is bring more fun back into my life. It, it definitely, it's, it's felt too hard for a long time. You know?
1: It has, right? And especially when you're driving, you know, you're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing. And um, what happens is, is that, or at least what I find, is that the more you push, you you can't push if you push too hard you just burn out because you know to you know as well as i do it takes 15 years to make a quick buck so you cannot say that if i push really hard for the next six months we're going to be where you know we're going to be there it's like it's not true <laughs> you know it's going to take 10 times longer than that um but um you know to your point though i mean you know it's about getting that balance right but um i don't know balance is a myth for me
0: well, I, uh, I watched a great movie, which is an old movie, but uh, Way of the Peaceful Warrior uh, this weekend. And uh, it's sort of movie I want to watch a few times because it's it's all, it's such a cliche, but it's all about the journey and enjoying the journey. And I think probably the last thing I would say at an individual level is gratitude is the one thing that has overwhelmingly come up in the last five years. Mm. You know, as an entrepreneur, you can, you can complain about the fact that your bank's giving you trouble or you've got the payroll to deal with or this or that. Or you could say, I chose to run my own company. I chose this life. I'm grateful I've got my own company. And just that energy shift changes a lot of things.
1: Yep. And on that bombshell, Scott Picking, great to have you on the show, dude.
0: Awesome, Matt. Thanks for
1: your time, man. Cheers, mate. Ciao thanks for listening to the matt Brown show guys don't forget you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates news and a show history so if you've been catching this on the podcast please head on over to our youtube channel and pound that subscribe button it would be great to catch the video version there and if you want a free copy of my number one amazon best-selling book you're in a game for free right now today. You can grab that on mattbrownshow.com/forward/slash/ebook.